Thank you, worship team. And uh, at this time, we're going to ask our, our speaker this morning, Dr. Barry Housen, who is the uh, academic dean at the Heritage College and Seminary, or just Seminary. And uh, he has uh, been in my life for a long time, about 16 years, I think, now. And uh, he has been a a mentor of mine and a professor, and it's a great pleasure to be able to have him here with us uh, this morning. So please come. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. It is good to be with you today. I want to share a psalm with you today as in the past several weeks, month, month and a half, we at our church, my fellow pastor and I have been doing the psalms as a means of encouragement to the people of God. In particular, I have looked at Psalm 23, the well-known psalm, 27, where it says, I am, uh, or you are my light, and you are my stronghold. And then in verse 30, or Psalm 36, another great psalm that highlights the righteousness and faithfulness of our covenant God. All of these psalms are meant to encourage. That is to encourage in times of trial and difficulty and I don't want to undermine the difficulties that we've had in the past few months, but they are truly still difficulties. And certainly some people, having come down with COVID, have had some major difficulties. The emphasis in these Psalms is to tell us to know who our God is and to know what he does for us. And in Psalm 23, 27, 36, you clearly are told and given a picture of who God is, a picture of his righteousness and his faithfulness, a picture of his covenant love for us. We see this throughout these Psalms. But one of the things that we don't find in these Psalms so much is the idea of what are we supposed to do in the midst of these trials and difficulties that come our way? It's shot through in those Psalms that we are to be people of faith. We are to trust in the Lord. But other than that, there really isn't a whole lot of counsel to us. This morning, what I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 37 and in particular, verses 1 to 8. In these verses, we have seven admonitions. If we didn't have very much in the others, we have seven in this to help us to know what to do in the midst of trials and difficulties. This psalm is, tells us the end of the wicked and the end of the righteous and contrast them. It is a wisdom psalm similar to Psalm 1, which clearly indicates the end of the wicked and the end of the righteous. The actual context 
of these admonitions that we find in Psalm 37, verses 1 to 8. These admonitions are concerning our life in this world in which we find ourselves fretting over the problems, or really our problems, and the freedom that people who don't follow Christ are having. They're prospering. They're doing well. That's the context. And the encouragement, as we're going to see, is that we ought not to fret over these things. I'd like us to read now Psalm 37. I'm just going to read the first nine verses. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that in these moments that we study your word, that you will reveal yourself to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will take the words of my mouth, the words from your word, and apply them to our hearts and to give us encouragement, and in particular for anyone that is struggling with trial and difficulty today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, from these verses, verses 1 to 8, we see what the Lord does or wants us to do when, deal, when difficulties come. What is his counsel to us? What are his admonitions to help us get through the difficulty? And that's what we want to look at in actually seven admonitions, as I mentioned earlier, and we'll go through each one rather quickly. The first one is found in verses 1 and 2. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. The first thing he says is, even though you might be diff having difficulties and suffering, and other people who don't follow the Lord are prospering, he's telling us not to fret, which is what we would likely do. We are not to fret. Literally, it means 
Uh, don't work yourself up in anger or in excitement. We are not to burn with anger, which can so easily happen because we're fretting. In other words, don't get all hot and bothered. What are we not to get hot and bothered about? He tells us those who are evil and do evil things. He goes on to say that we are not to be envious. Not only don't fret, but don't be envious of those who do wrong and get away with it. This idea of envious means literally something similar to fret. It means to burn or be inflamed. We are not to burn with jealousy. That is to wish that you were someone else. And in particular, to be like the wicked in their prospering. I have a few illustrations that I got from uh, a commentary. His name is James Johnston. And he gives these illustrations of jealousy and envy that can happen in our lives. Let me give you a few of them. He says teenage girls sometimes feel this sort of envy. They see other girls show lots of skin and the boys are interested but they dress modestly and no one pays them the kind of attention. They're popular, they think, so maybe I should be like them. They wish they were not so sheltered or that their parents were not so strict. What is going on in their heart? They are envious of wrongdoers. As adults, we might feel this sort of envy at work. We see a coworker who has gotten ahead by being deceitful. Maybe he plays with the numbers, or maybe he's, he's a master of office politics, and he is climbing the ladder faster than we are. It's hard to admit, but we're a little jealous. We're wondering whether we should start playing the game too. We are envious of wrongdoers. Maybe you're retired and your friend isn't a believer. He never goes to church totally lives for himself and seems to be doing better than you are. His retirement savings are bigger than yours. His kids and grandkids seem to be better off. As you look back, you wonder if following God was worth it. You are envious of wrongdoers. Maybe you're a man who is wondering whether it is worth to stay in your marriage. Your college roommate divorced his wife, without biblical grounds, of course, and married a beautiful younger woman. He seems happier than you are. You are envious of wrongdoers. Lastly, consider a single woman who wants to get married. Her friend snagged the perfect guy by sleeping with him. She is telling this woman that she needs to get out and play the field more. She's beginning to think her friend is right. She is envious of wrongdoers. So what is the psalmist telling us? He's telling us not to fret, not to look at the evildoers, not to see what seems to be good in their lives. 
This same problem, we could turn to Psalm 73. We don't have time, but I would encourage you to read it. The psalmist is rest, wrestling with the very same thing. It seems like the ungodly are prospering, and he as the godly is not. He's in trouble. So it's quite natural for us, when we are facing trials and difficulties, to look at others who do not follow God and seem to have a life of plenty, and they are prospering. And we ask God, why? We can be upset because we have followed and served him, and yet we are experiencing these trials or these situations in which we envy. We think we should be relieved from them because of our faith and service to God. Has he forsaken us? What's the psalmist say? Two things. Don't fret. Don't burn with anger. And don't be envious. Don't burn with jealousy. And why should we not? Well, look what it says in verse 2. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. This is the end of those who at this time are prospering. Their grass will soon wither. Just like, their, like the grass withers, they will wither. Just like the green plants that die, they will die. The psalmist focuses our attention upon the ultimate end. Justice will be clear in the end. And remember that we're talking about eternity here. We live maybe 80, 90 years, but there is an eternity which is one grain of sand in the whole of the ocean compared to what we will have with God in eternity. This, again, if you read Psalm 73 and verses 18 to 20, the psalmist recognizes also. He realizes their end is a dead end. And because of that, his faith grows. Although the psalmist doesn't mention this, the believer not only sees things in light of eternity and therefore should not fret or be envious, but she also sees that the trials of the present are there to make us like Christ, to prepare us for heaven. To in this life depend more on him. To test our faith to see whether we be in the faith. Romans 8 and verse 28 says, All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And the purpose, the ultimate purpose, is that we will be like Christ so that we will enjoy the fullness of the presence of God in heaven. We should not envy. We should not fret. We have an eternity with a God who will shower upon us all the blessings. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. But we will only see this if we see God in the trial and look to him in the trial. This is what the psalmist does in Psalm 73. I've talked about in the first part of that psalm. He is thinking about 
how rough he's having it and how good the ungodly are having it. And then we said in verses 18 to 20, he sees the actual end of those ungodly. His heart is changed. And how is it changed? We read in verse 17 of Psalm 73, until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. He came into the presence of God. Whenever we come into the presence of God and we experience God, we see things as they ought to be seen. We see them in their right, eternal, and spiritual perspective. Will we not fret or be envious in whatever difficulty we face? The answer to that is to come into the presence of God. We need to remember the devil and the flesh and the world will tempt us to make us feel God is cheating us. This was the tactic of the Garden of Eden by the devil, and it continues to be. He wants to undermine the truth and the fidelity of our God and his word. He wants us to fret. He wants us to be envious. The answer is communing with him and his word. So verses 1 and 2 tell us what we are not to do when difficult times come, but what are we to do positively? How are we able to keep things in that spiritual perspective, to keep our eyes on the Lord? So this brings us to the second admonition and carries through to the seventh. The first thing he says in verse three is, trust in the Lord and do good. This is really the heading, one could say, of all the admonitions, and what we said was the main theme of what we should do in Psalm 23, Psalm 36, Psalm 27, that is to trust in the Lord. Remember, he is our covenant God. He has unconditionally committed himself to your salvation. He is your covenant God. He has entered into covenant with you through Jesus Christ. And he has affirmed that covenant by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is guaranteed. So we need to place our trust and our hope, our confidence in this our God. We are not to lean on our own reasoning in our ways and in our actions, but we are to look to him in his word and do what it says, even though it's a struggle to do it, especially in trial. We are not to fret, we are not to worry, but we are to place our hope and confidence in the Lord, to lean on him, not on our own understanding. Isn't this really what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6? Remember that passage where he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So do not worry, Jesus says. 
Do not worry about what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear, for the pagans run after all these things. But your Father knows that you need them. And so what should we do in faith? How do we trust in the Lord? Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And notice, he says, trust in the Lord and do good. This is not a passive trust. This is an active trust. We express our trust in doing good towards others, even those who have harmed us. We are to live out our life in trust. Trusting means obedience to his word. We are to be obedient in our attitude and in our actions. That's what trusting the Lord is. It is in our attitudes and our actions doing good. Reminds me of Jesus at the cross. Remember he said in his humanity, basically he wanted out of the cross. And yet, what did he say? This is trust. What did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. That's trust. Do you think Jesus was feeling great when he was praying that? He was in trial. We're even told that he sweat drops of blood. That's what it means to trust. I think of Paul under persecution and at the end of his life, he knew he was going to probably die in 2 Timothy. He knew. But he also knew that God could deliver him. It didn't matter. He simply trusted God. We are to trust the Lord and do good, to do what God makes clear in his word and leave what is unclear to him. The next admonition is dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. It's a very interesting thing to dwell on the land. What does that really mean? Well, from an Israelite point of view, the land was the inheritance that God had given them. And really, in a sense, this is the place where God is. For the Israelite, to be in the land was to be in the presence of God. This is further expressed by this phrase, enjoy safe pasture. Now, I... I don't think that's the best translation. I think the best translation is feed on faithfulness. And so the idea here is that we are to feed on God's faithfulness and we are to do this while we are dwelling in the presence of God. All this implies that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Again, similar to trust in the Lord. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. We are to gain our strength and our security from his faithfulness and in turn, therefore, be faithful. When trials come, we need to focus on him and so be faithful to the Lord. These first two positive commands are basically saying the same thing. Put your heart on the things of God and come into his presence. That's what you do when you tend towards fretting and envy. 
Admonition four is a well-known command and promise. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Tremendous command and a great promise for us. What the psalmist is saying is that in times of trial, our happiness and our joy can be swept away. But it doesn't need to be because God has not been removed from his place in our lives. His love and his faithfulness is still there. It's always there, no matter what we're going through. And so, therefore, we should focus on him and make him our delight. Make him our joy. Because he is joy. Remember, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us is the spirit of joy. It's one of the fruit of the spirit. And God never changes in his joy towards us and giving us joy. He is the eternal God who is our Father and will never leave us nor forsake us. He is to be our satisfaction. That's what it means to take delight in him. What this verse is telling us is that when we are in trial, what we need to do at all times, again, it's saying, we need to focus our attention on him. All of these first admonitions come around to this very thing. All my life should be focused on him. Because that's where I find joy. This is a command in the midst of trial to delight in the Lord. And how do we delight in the Lord? Is it not meditating on his word and letting his word fill our hearts? Our joy, our delight in God can be squelched by our trials because our hearts are set on the things of this earth. But when our hearts are on the eternal things, there can be joy in the midst of trial. Doesn't mean the pain goes away, but in the midst of the pain, there can be joy, but only as we focus and meet with our Lord. And notice the promise. As we delight ourselves in the Lord, he's going to give us the desires of our heart. That's a wonderful statement. It doesn't mean that the desire of your heart, say, is for a pink Cadillac, and the, the Lord's going to give you that simply because you're delighting in the Lord. No, what he's talking about is you delight in the Lord, and as you are filled more and more with him, then your desires are his desires. It's a promise to us that we will be more like Christ, more thinking like Christ, as we delight in the Lord. The fifth admonition says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. Another great admonition and great promise. The admonition literally says, and this is very helpful, roll your whole course of life with its troubles and cares upon the Lord. Give your whole life's way to God. Lay it on his shoulders. Don't hold it yourself, which is all too often what we do. Give it back to him. Give him the problems. Roll away your fretting and your envy. Reminds us of Peter in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, where he told 
where he tells the um, congregants that he's speaking to to cast their burden, their cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse says, Roll the whole burden of life upon the Lord. Leave with Jehovah not your present fretfulness merely, but all your cares. In fact, submit your judgment, leave all with the God of all. What a medicine is this for expelling envy. What a high attainment does this precept indicate how blessed must he be who lives every day in obedience to it. Committing our way to the Lord. Instead of rolling our whole course of life with its troubles on the Lord, we tend to follow what Proverbs chapter 3 says and lean upon our own understanding and try to fix the problem ourselves. But the admonition here is that we give the whole way of our lives, the good and the bad, to him. And we trust to him, or we trust, we are to, pardon me, trust in him to deal with it for our best and for his glory. I'm reminded of the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the book of Daniel, if you remember, they were supposed to, with all the others, bow down to the statue. They didn't. And they were tattled on. And so King Nebuchadnezzar brought them into his presence and said, now bow down. And they said these words, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If the God we serve is able to deliver us, then he will deliver us from the blazing furnace and from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That is an example of committing your way to the Lord. We trust that the Lord will do what he is pleased to do. And it may not always be what we consider to be good, but it is good in that God has willed it for us. And notice, and the promise is he will do it. He will act. He will bring about justice. He will do what needs to be done in the instant for his glory and for our good. In the instant with the three Hebrews, he delivered them. What a marvelous picture of God's salvation. We need to be constantly reminded that our God is wise. He is sovereign and he is loving. He always does what is best and for our good. Therefore, we should commit our way to the Lord and trust in him. And he will take care of us. He will do what is best for us. And we need to remember, as we've said, he doesn't always do the things that we would expect him to do or what we would want him to do. We need to remember Isaiah 55 that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. A number of years ago, about 20 years ago, I was doing my PhD studies at McGill University and I was in the final uh, end of it with writing my thesis, my dissertation. Uh, 
And I had gone down to meet with the committee to go over my thesis for the oral presentation. And they came out to me and said that the external examiner had failed me. Well, I was devastated. And I really questioned, God, what are you doing? You've had me go through all this, and I've got to this, the end, and this is happening. It was very difficult, but what we ended up doing was another professor helped me to write the first chapter. That's really all that needed to be changed, a little bit of the others. And a year later, it was presented. The external examiner gave me a, above 10%. In that 10% area is where this thesis was, top 10. And then, a year after that, it was published by one of the most prestigious university presses or academic presses, Brill Publishers. Now, I had to commit my way to the Lord. I had to trust in him. But I want you to see that though it didn't make sense to me at the time, God was doing something greater and bigger later. And I am thankful for that, although it was very, very difficult. We are to give him all our way, to not hold on to anything, and he will do far better job than you and I can do. Give it to him, and he will do perfectly with our lives. And notice the promise. He will make your righteous, verse 6, reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. God is a God of blessing. And he will bless you, even in this life. But how much more in the life to come? And if this is true, what should we do? Our sixth admonition tells us, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Literally, it means to be silent. This silence is to be before the Lord. And it's further explained by this idea of waiting patiently, which actually has the idea of waiting longingly for God. And putting these things together, we are to wait with silent patience and submission to God in the midst of the trial. As one commentator says, this is a calm resignation which leaves itself absolutely in the hands of God. It is the very opposite of fretfulness and worry that can so easily control the mind and body. This reminds me of Abraham when he was told by God, to take the son of promise and put him to death on Mount Moriah. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Abraham? He loves his son. And he also believes that this is the son of promise. God has promised to carry forth the line, the line even of salvation for the whole world, through this person, Isaac. And I just, you know, the, the, the text in chapter 22 has this calmness about it. Abraham just simply carries out what he needs to do, 
Three days later, he's packed up, he's ready to go, takes his son, goes the way. Son asks, where's the lamb for the offering? He says, the Lord will take care of that. I see the stillness here in Abraham. He was still, and he waited longingly for God. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 46 calls us to, that we should be still and know that he is God, and that he will be exalted in the midst of the nations. My heart and mind must rest in the knowing that God is in utter control and will deal with all the difficulties around me. This is the blessed place to be in the midst of the storm, to be still before the Lord. The last admonition comes in the next words in verse 8. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. You see, fretting and enviousness creates anger. And what he's saying here is that we ought not to be angry. We need to fight being angry at these things. As we perceive our trials and others' prosperity, we have a tendency to be angry. Maybe someone has hurt us. We tend to be angry at God and at the person who has hurt us. God says flatly, get rid of your anger. And why should we get rid of anger? Because he tells us it only leads to evil in verse 8. We are to deal with anger now, calling on God to give us grace that we be not filled with bitterness and anger and wrath, but be filled with his love for God and for others. Bitterness will destroy the soul. So the psalmist says in verse 9, For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. This is the promise to us. And the action is to hope in the Lord. This is what the antidote is for fretting and for envy to trust in the Lord and do good, to dwell in his presence and dwell on his faithfulness, to delight in him, to commit our way to him, to be still before him and wait patiently for him. This is the antidote to fretting over the fact that you're struggling your trials are great. The difficulties that you face in your life and the envy, this is the antidote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that your word helps us to know in the midst of trial what we ought to do. Thank you for this passage, and we pray that you'll give us grace to live it out. Help us to keep our focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.